Paul began the third chapter of the book of Philippians by talking about false teachers. In fact, you remember he said, beware, 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 beware of the dogs. Dogs are opportunists. They're scavengers. He's talking about false teachers. It's interesting. Jesus told us that in the church, there was going to be a mixture of genuine Christians and non-genuine Christians, the wheat and the tares. But we are not supposed to try to figure out who the tares are. That's what Jesus said. Wait until judgment. Otherwise, you're going to rip up some wheat. You're going to claim someone's a tear when they're not. That's not who Paul's talking about when he says, beware, beware, beware in Philippians chapter three. He's talking about false teachers. And you deal with false teachers in your presence differently than you deal with false believers. False believers, you want them to become real believers. You want somehow for them to realize, I haven't really made a commitment to Christ. If I made a commitment to Christ, there would be a transformative work in my life. You want them to be able to figure that out. God is tender, loving, forgiving. He's working within people. And sometimes salvation is a process. That's important to remember, realize. And, but, but when it comes to false teachers, you deal with them differently. You get them out of the midst of the church. And Paul is in prison in Rome. He hears about these false teachers in Philippi, which we know were legalists, probably Judaizers, because he calls them beware of the dogs, beware of the false teachers, and beware of the mutilators. That was generally a reference to those who were teaching that you had to be circumcised to genuinely be saved. You had to keep some kind of the Jewish law in order to be saved. So Paul returns to that now at the end of this chapter. And if you got your Bible open in front of you, just look at our text. It starts in verse 17. It gets done in verse 21. It's a, a, a small text, and there's three sections in it that have comparisons. So there's a comparison and a contrast in three sections of them. As I look down at the text, I see, first of all, that in the end of verse 17, it says, and note those who so walk. So he talks about a walk. Then in verse 18, he says, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So the first thing that he does is talk about walking properly, making sure that we don't walk in an improper manner the way that there are those in their presence who are. So it's a contrast of a real walk and a false walk. We want to make sure that as we interact with God, as we interact with one another, that we've got a genuine walk with him. Now, one of the last things he says about these people that are not walking correctly is in verse, um, the end of verse 19, where he says, who set their mind on earthly things. One of the things, the, one of the ways that people walk that like we are not supposed to walk, set their minds on things of this earth. And that is in contrast to the beginning of verse 20, where it says, for our citizenship is in heaven. So there's two kinds of walks. You can walk properly, or you can walk improperly. You could put your mind on the things of the earth, or you can put your mind on heaven. So we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens here on this earth. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But then he goes on to talk about one more contrast. He talks about those who genuinely have citizenship that is in heaven, that we are eagerly waiting from our for our Savior to come to us from heaven, which makes sense, okay, because he's up in heaven. People that we love that have died and gone before us, they're up in heaven. Uh, so we should be heavenly minded. And don't believe it's possible, by the way, to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I think you can be so earthly minded, you're no heavenly good. But when we put our, our mind on the things of heaven, there's uh, two things that happen for those who do. And that's at the very end. That's in verse 21 is it says for Jesus Christ, who's going to come from heaven, we're citizens of heaven. Jesus who's going to come from heaven is going to transform our lowly body and conform it to his glorious body. So that's the other comparison. So you've got a comparison in the way that you walk, a comparison. Are you a member of, of earth? Are you a citizen of heaven, a citizen of earth or a citizen of heaven? That's second. And finally, that this lowly body is going to be transformed into the glorious body of Christ. That's Paul's outline for this. Now, one of the things that I do when I first am putting together a study is I'll write a bunch of different outlines. Another thing that I do is I'm looking for the dominant theme. 
I want to know, is this dominant theme different than earlier in the chapter? Has he, con has he started a new section? And the dominant theme of this section is that we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of earth. In fact, I want to show you a passage that tells us that we are sojourners. We're passing through. I realize that there is a way in which you and I are, are citizens of earth. I realize that our passports tell us that. On our passports, it will say, you are, uh, whoever holds this uh, has all the rights of a citizen, and it uses the word citizen. So I'm a citizen of the United States. Some of you guys here have dual citizenships, maybe even more than that. You're a citizen here. Maybe you're a citizen in Mexico. Maybe you're a citizen somewhere else as well. So we know that. But when it comes to the citizenship that matters, that's heaven. When it comes for the citizenship that we are to live for, because we are born again, because we, are, we, are, we belong to Christ, we are to live for the citizenship that is in heaven. That's the contrast that we're going to see. So let's talk about the walks first, because he's got two of them here. So he says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as uh, you have pattern, a, uh, you have us for a pattern. Let me read that without stumbling. It usually helps. Uh, Brethren, joy in, uh, join in my example and note those who walk so as you have a, uh, from, uh, you have us for a pattern. I'm not going to read it again. It's the last time I'm going to read it. You have us for a pattern. So the first thing that he says is, note people that walk like us. We've been there with you. You know what we're like. You know what our hearts are. You know what our interaction is like. You guys have experienced this. So note those who walk like that. Now, in this, we could talk about a few things. He says, follow their example. Note those who walk in such a way and that you have from us a pattern. The Bible tells us that the way we are supposed to walk, number one, is to have a fervent love for one another. In fact, the Bible says, above all, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. The Bible tells us that we are to be tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, even as Christ has forgiven us, that this is the interaction that we are to have as we walk with one another. We could go to so many different passages that talk about the way we are to walk. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we're told, for we walk by faith and not by sight. In Micah 6, 8, and I love this verse, so I use it a lot, but in Micah 6, 8, we're told what's required of us. This is both Old and New Testament. There are three things that are required of you. It says, but um, this is Micah 3, 7. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Do justly means that you treat the people around you properly, that you're not mistreating people. That you love mercy is that you're a, a person that has mercy and you're looking for an opportunity to give mercy. When someone offends you, and you give mercy, you're very much like God because God is a merciful God. And since the Bible tells us the mercy we give is the mercy we're gonna get, then I wanna be the most merciful person that you know. If we have some interaction, I wanna be as merciful to you as possible because I need mercy from God. And here's what I know about you as well. You may look at me like, oh, you do, but you do too. That's what I know about you. I know that you need God's mercy as well. And finally, that we are to walk humbly with our God. And then in, in John, in 1 John 1, 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now that's talking about God. As we determine to live our lives right and we walk in the light with God, he is in the light. And because he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We're having fellowship with God. It goes on to say, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all of our sins, which is a very interesting passage, which talks about the relationship that we have with God equating to the forgiveness of sins. So is it the only place that you find this in the Bible? In John 17, verse three, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. It's a relationship. Jesus said that he will say to some, away from me, for I never knew you. 
So it, they, they knew if you know him, then your sins are forgiven you and you enter into that walk with him. So that's how we are supposed to walk. And we're supposed to walk like people who have walked bef- around us as a good example. So we're supposed to look to people that we can walk the way that they walked as well. So then we go to the second part here where he says, um, verse 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now we're learning something about these other people he's talking about. You've got ones that are walking like Paul. You've got ones walking like the New Testament tells us how to walk. But there are some who are the enemy of the cross. How could they be an enemy of the cross? Because they're teaching salvation some other way besides the cross. If someone begins to teach salvation as baptism, speaking in tongues, um, keeping the law, whatever it might be, they become an enemy of the cross because it is the cross of Christ that, that causes us to enter into heaven. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians and some other places as well that it is through the shedding of his blood that our sins are forgiven. This is really important to know because a lot of cults, a lot of false teachers kind of like to key off on the cross in different directions, not really following what the Bible has to say about how we're saved. We are saved because the life is in the blood and his blood was shed on that cross for us. And so our sins were forgiven. So these people that he's talking about here are enemies of the cross. He's probably talking about the same ones that he introduced in chapter one. Beware of the dogs, beware of the false teachers, beware of the mutilators. He's probably talking about them. They're talking about being saved by keeping the law. There are those today who will believe that you cannot have a right relationship with God unless you keep certain dietary laws from the Old Testament, unless you keep certain other ceremonial laws from the Old Testament, that you can't really have a deep and abiding relationship with him. If they are replacing, if there's one thing to have freedom in Christ. We are of people the most free. And if you decide, you know what? I want to keep the, I want to keep the, I want to keep the kosher laws of the Old Testament. Then you have freedom to do that. I would ask you, why? What are you hoping to, you know, what are you hoping to obtain from it? But if you decide, I just want to eat kosher, then you have the freedom to do that. If you think that you are now closer to God or more usable by God, or if you think that you are genuinely saved and other people aren't because you're keeping the law, now we have an entirely different issue. If you think that by eating kosher that you are genuinely saved and other people are not, or that you are closer to God than other people, now we've got a bigger problem. And I think that's why he calls them the enemy of the cross. He's not just dealing with people who aren't following the Lord or people who aren't serious about walking with him. He's dealing with people who are creeping in with their lies and causing problems. So he says that they are an enemy of the cross. Second thing he says about them is their end is their destruction whose end is destruction. That these false teachers are not saved and the end of their lives is going to be destruction. When uh, we face false teachers now, we ought to be praying that they would genuinely repent, that they would genuinely get saved because the end of false teachers is destruction. And that's what he says here of them. He says their God is their belly, which is an interesting thing. Some people have a bigger belly. I mean, some people have a bit, I should say, I said that wrong. See, me and jokes don't go together really well, just so you guys know that. Some people's God is bigger than other people is the way that that joke is supposed to go. Whose God is their belly and some people's God is bigger than others. Um, It simply means appetite. It simply means body drives. It's people that are living for food, living for drinking, living for sex, living for carousing. That's simply what it means. These these false teachers don't have, in their legalism, they're okay because they keep portions of the law, but there are other things that they don't keep at all. Instead of being transformed, when we give our lives to Christ, there's this transformative work and suddenly we are changed by him and we begin to live differently and our God is not our belly, but their God is their belly. It says then of these people too, in the way that they're walking, whose glory is their shame. The way in which they're living, they are now, um, 
They are flaunting it. Something about the city of Philippi is, and something important to remember, and maybe we haven't addressed this that much yet. I've told you it's a Roman city, but if you were to travel to Philippi today and see the ruins of Philippi, you would realize how Roman it is. It is very Roman. And it was a, a very much like a Roman city where in Rome, in the first century, their you know, homosexuality, sexual sin was prevalent. Um, worship through prostitutes and the worship that they had in Rome took place all of the time. And so there was this constant battle in the early church about living in such a way that Christ would be glorified and staying away from the things of the world. It's kind of like today when you think about it, except we don't have Roman paganism. We just got paganism. There's just paganism. People would just want to live without God. They want to live apart from God. And so they just want to live their own lives. So it's like people that would say, you're okay as long as you go to church. And there are people who say this, as long as you go to church, you can live however you want to live as long as you go to church. That would be the equivalent. The, that person is an enemy of the cross because when you are changed, something happens. When you are saved, there's a transformation inside of you that takes place. You now want to live differently. That's one of the signs that you genuinely committed your life to Christ. If you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. And I've got myself in trouble and I've used this analogy, by the way, which really isn't so much of an analogy as it is a reality for some people. That if you say, well, I, don't, I, I love Jesus, I just don't want to do what he says. Well, then according to the Bible, you haven't really made a commitment to Christ. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The Bible says in 1 John, if you say that you love him and you don't keep his commandments, you're lying. And what happens? What's the reality of what's taking place? Well, when I surrender my life to Christ, I come to him and, and I confess my sin and there's something inside of me. I'm being drawn by him and I want to give my life to him. And so I surrender my life to Christ and he changes me. So, uh, the Bible tells, says all things are made new. All of a sudden, I want to do what God wants me to do. And when I first became a Christian, there were certain biggies that I got rid of right away that I thought I was doing pretty good. But God showed me after a while that sin is like, like an onion or a parfait, if you're a Shrek fan. It's got layers. And that there's things that God's dealing with, but you've got that desire and that heart to know him, to walk with him, to get those things out of your life. And you've got to learn how to deal and walk in grace. You've got to learn, you know what? I, 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 I sin, I blow it, I'm sorry. But there is a transformation that makes you different. And because of that, there are a lot of people today who, are, who will claim that they're Christians, but their glory is their shame. They flaunt what should be a shame to them and they end up flaunting it. The very last thing about the way that these people walk that are the people that he's talking about is that they set their mind on earthly things. They set their mind on things here on the earth. Uh, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So what's he talking about? What's he talking about when he talks about setting your mind on things of the earth? I, I think he's talking about just the way we live, the daily living. But I also think he's talking about the false religion, which to them is legalism, is some form of legalism, mutilation. Probably he deals with the issue in Romans as well with people telling them they have to be circumcised to be saved. And so in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul says this. So let no one judge you with food or drink in regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Now, these are all Jewish things. He's saying, don't let anyone judge you when it comes to food or drink, kosher food or kosher drink. All of it, kosher is not just the kind of food. In other words, if, you, if you're going to eat kosher, you're not going to eat pork. But if you're going to eat kosher, you're also not going to eat a cheeseburger because you can't have milk and meat at the same time, or you can't have dairy and meat at the same time. Now, the reason for that passage is really funny. There's an Old Testament passage that says, don't boil the kid in the mother's milk. Don't boil the baby goat in the mother's milk is the idea. And so you can't have a cheeseburger today because there's some idea out there, if you're kosher, that maybe, you know, that's the, the baby, is the meat and the milk is from the mother and you're going to be somehow violating what the law says. There's also a process of how things had to be bled. 
So in order to eat kosher, it's not just a matter of restricting your food. You've got to actually eat a certain kosher way. And so he says, don't let anyone judge you with food or with drink or in regards to festivals. There were seven festivals a year that the that Jewish people had. <clears throat> Jesus was crucified on Passover, rose on the first fruits, and the Holy Spirit was given on the Feast of Pentecost. I think there were four of the feasts that were fulfilled, and there are three yet to be fulfilled. Jesus did certain things on those days, and I do believe. I, I don't know that Jesus is coming back on the Feast of Trumpets. That's what people will say, that it's a two-day feast, and so you don't know the day or the hour because Jesus is going to come back on the Feast of Trumpets. I probably think not, personally, because I think that when someone sets a date for Jesus to return, I think that God's like, well, not that date, not that date. But every September, that's the reason that you have people that talk about Jesus coming back. And we're, you realize how close we are to things just going haywire as far as date setting goes. That's because we're, we're close to 2,000 years from the time that Jesus was crucified. There's going to be people that are going to add all kinds of things to that. We're, it's ready to just come unloaded. It already is to some degree, but it's getting ready to, uh, to be completely um, unloaded. So he goes on to say, with festivals, Sabbaths, which are Sabbaths, we know what that is, new moons, the Jewish calendar was centered around the moon, the, the lunar uh, calendar. And so they kept certain things according to uh, the, the new moons. And, it, and then it says of these things, Sabbaths, it says, don't let anybody judge you. Food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. In other words, when they put their mind on the things of the earth, that's Sabbaths, festivals, food, and drinks. That's the religious things that they were doing because that's what they did here. Those things are a shadow of things to come, which is why Jesus became the fulfillment and we are no longer to live for those things. Along those same lines, 2 Timothy 3, 2 and 5 says this, for men will be, this is the way that people are living in the last days. They're, they're setting their mind to the things of the earth. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. This is what the characteristic of people during the last days will be. They will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unloving, unholy, I flipped those, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away from. Now, the thing that really sticks out to me about that passage, and we're talking about the way that people walk in the last days, is it gives this whole list of people that we would think would be like, I don't know, in universities that would be somewhere apart from, but all of a sudden we find out that this is a list of Christian behavior because it says that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They're, that's the doctrines of demons. That's the last day's teaching. People that teach that what God wants for you is just all the very best. God just wants you to be joy-filled and enthusiastic and happy and that's just what they teach so that people will hear and their ears will be tickled and they'll be living that way. So there are people who live this way even within the church. Now, the Bible tells us right here in the middle of it that they put their minds on the things of this earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. The moment that you are genuinely born again, then you gain citizenship into heaven. Heaven is your home. Now, you are not living there now, but you will be one day. And I'm not talking about your death, by the way, although that's one way you could get there. But I'm talking about all of us gloriously entering into heaven. There's that great section in Revelation chapter 4 where you've got all people of all tribes, of all tongues, of all languages that get, gather together before the throne of God and they lift him up and they worship him. 
Heaven is ours. We are, we are citizens of heaven. Just to help us understand a little bit more about what that means, Hebrews 11, 9 and 11 says this, by faith, talking about Abraham, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with, uh, of the same promises, for he waited for a city whose foundations and builder and maker was God. You and I are like Abraham. We're called Father Abraham because he was our father of faith. And we're like him. He was looking for a city whose foundations were not built by men, but were built by God. And so he was called by God to leave Haran or, or to leave Ur, to go and to dwell in Canaan. But he lived in tents the entire time because he couldn't find a city whose foundation was built by God. And Abraham becomes a type for us. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are just passing through. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come. Now we have a city that we live in, most of us here. Some of you guys are snowbirds. Got two cities you live in. But we have a city that we live in here. But our real city is in heaven. That's the idea. We have a continual city that's in heaven. There's a way in which we are citizens of heaven and not here on the earth. I realize that in a practical way, we are citizens of, of the United States, but there's a very real way in which we are not citizens here and we are citizens that are up in heaven. In 2 Peter 2, 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that they may speak against you, that they may, uh, excuse me, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be, uh, uh, they may by your good works. Let me go ahead and try to read it again. All right, correctly. So I'm going to start from the beginning again. This is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, <clears throat> they may, by your good works which you observe, glorify God in the day of the visitation. That is in the day that Jesus Christ returns. So here he tells us in the beginning that we are sojourners and we're pilgrims. There is a way, of course, that we, we live in a city, that we have our houses that we live in. But we're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're passing through. This is not our home. Now, I, I think that's really important. And there, there, there's a particular word here that we get. And I, and I let me go see if I can figure out which word it is. Um, I'm not going to guess at it. There's a certain word here that we get our word politics from. So I just don't want to guess at it and make it, make it the wrong word. But politics we really ought to care about are the politics of heaven. Even when I say the word politics, it scares some of you guys. I can see you guys almost flinch a little bit. It's like, he's going to talk about politics. Oh no, don't do it. Don't do it. But there is a, there's a politics in heaven that we really should care about. What matters to me is not whether or not you are Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. What matters is, do we have the politics of heaven? Our, is our mind set upon our God who is in heaven? And know that our greatest goal is that people would come to Christ, that they would come and they would meet him. And so finally, in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, he says, now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. That's part of our, our job here. And when we think about being ambassadors, when you're an ambassador, as far as I know, having citizenship to whatever country, a dual citizenship to whatever country you're an ambassador in isn't required. But you don't have to have citizenship to be an ambassador. You're representing somewhere else. You're representing the United States of America if you're an ambassador in another country. And so we are ambassadors for Christ. Here we're living in a foreign country. We're living in a foreign world because this is not our home. And we represent him because we're ambassadors for him. And when people see you living your life for Christ, they're supposed to be drawn to him. So Paul says again, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, 
Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. As through God, we were pleading, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So we're ambassadors as if God is pleading through us that people would make their lives right with God. I love the first message that was ever preached by the church, was preached once the Holy Spirit was given. It was on the day of Pentecost, and it was Peter that preached it. And I love that he says, repent and make things right with God, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what God does in our lives. When we surrender ourselves to him, when people see us as ambassadors and they give their lives to Christ, there's a time of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. So you and I are not earth dwellers. Now, as we're talking about citizenship, our citizenship being in heaven, the contrast to that would be people who are citizens here on this earth that don't know God. Now, do you know that Revelation, the book of Revelation, uses that term somewhere around 12 times to speak about those who are going to be judged. It uses the term or something like it, earth dwellers. I want to give you um, some, some passages that speak in this way. Uh, first of all, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. It says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, we'll talk about that in a moment, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. So in this world, first of all, there's the lust of the flesh. That's the desires, living for your body. It could be as simple as living to eat, living, living to drink, living for some other desire, living for sex. Our, our world is certainly known for that. Then there's the lust of the eyes, wanting things that are beautiful. It's part of what this world has to offer, right? Things that are beautiful. And the pride of life becoming somebody according to what the world says. Now in Hebrews 13, 14, it says, for we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come. So here, although we're part of a city, in reality, we have no continuing city here but we're seeking the one that is to come. So when we talk about earth dwellers, the Bible talks about them in a negative way. You're never going to find the Bible talking about Christians and saying, and you guys just, you know, are, are, are dwelling on the earth. It's always in a negative sense. Let me give you an example. Revelation 3.10. As far as I know, this is the first time in the book of Revelation that the term earth dweller is used. And we're looking at earth dwellers compared to citizens of heaven. That's the contrast, all right? Just in case you're listening to me now going, what's he talking about? Just wanted to keep you up, up to date. All right, so Revelation 3, 10. He says this to the faithful church. This is the church of Philadelphia. They're the faithful church, and he says this to them. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So he's talking about the rapture of the church. He's talking about the tribulation period. Jesus said there's a time coming that is worse than anything this world has ever seen and worse than anything that this world is ever going to see. And we are going to be kept from it. It's called God's indignation. It's called God's wrath. The Bible says that we are not going to take part of God's wrath in several different places, by the way. But this comes upon those who dwell on the earth. When people say that the church is going to go through the tribulation period, the answer to that is God's not mad at his church. And people say, well, the, we, the Bible says in this world you're going to have tribulation. Y yeah, we are. We know that. We know there are difficulties. We know there are hardships. We know there are tribulations. We know we face all those things. But not when they come from God. When God comes to the point where he's finally going to pour his wrath on this earth, he's pouring it on earth dwellers. And this is my challenge for you today. Are you a citizen of heaven or are you an earth dweller? If everything on this earth were to go south, more south than it already has, then what would your response be? In um, 
Also along those same lines, in Revelation 6.10, we get another one. Remember, it's used over 12 times uh, in the book of Revelation. And it says in Revelation 6.10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the way it's used in the book of Revelation over and over again. Those that are going to be judged by God are people who are earth dwellers. I'll give you another one. This is Revelation 8, 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and the three angels who are about to sound. So if you study the book of Revelation, you go through it and you read every time the term earth dweller is used, you're going to find it in this negative sense, talking about them and the way that they're going to be judged. Now, I don't think that this is just a, a writing tool of John in the book of Revelation. Jesus also used this term in a negative sense. In Luke 21, and we'll be here not far from now on our weekend studies, we're going to slow down and we're going to take Luke 21 really slow. That's Jesus talking about the last days. So we just want to really slow down, take our time, make our way through Luke 21. So here's what Jesus says in Luke 21 near the end of the chapter. He's talked about the last days. He's talked about the difficulties that Israel's going to go through. He's talked about what it's going to be like in the last days. And then he says this in, in Luke 21, 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, with drunkenness, and the cares of this life, that that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. The actual return of Christ is going to come as a snare for earth dwellers. It's not going to come as a snare for citizens of heaven. We're not wandering around going, I hope Jesus doesn't come back tomorrow because all this bad stuff's going to happen. No, we're like, we're going to be delivered. Jesus is going to deliver us. And the New Testament saints had that, that example as well or had that expectation as well. So Jesus goes on to say then, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all of these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. So it's going to come as a snare on earth dwellers, but we're to pray that we would be counted worthy to be able to stand before the Son of Man. And notice the way it says it here, and pray always that you might be counted worthy to escape there in verse 36. People will tell me, well, you just believe in the rapture of the church because, you know, you want to escape. I, I love that they used to say to me, you're just an American who wants to escape. And the reason they said that is because it was thought that it's kind of American theology that the rapture of the church. And my response was always, what, what gave it away? First of all, that I'm an American. And second, that I want to escape the tribulation period. I don't want to go through the tribulation period. I've been told by God that we will not go through the tribulation period. He's going to, it's, it's for earth dwellers, for people who are dwellers on the earth. And if you are an earth dweller, then that is just a scary thing. Now, a couple more things. Uh, Matthew 24, this is the equivalent to Luke 21. In Matthew 24, verses 43 through 44, it says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. So as citizens of heaven, we are waiting for our Lord who will return from heaven. Let's go back to our text. So we go back to verse 20. For, for our citizenship is in heaven, it says. And then it says this. For which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be conformed to his glorious body. So one of the things that we do as citizens of heaven is to wait for the return of Jesus. Now, this is a really important point for us today because the Bible says in the last days, scoffers are going to arise 
and say, where is the promise of his coming? They're going to rise and believe that there is no rapture of the church and that he is not going to return. But the Bible tells us there in Peter that God is not slack concerning his promises, that to God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years just like a day. Now, I don't think you should do math from that, by the way. We are just so tempted when we find math in the Bible to go, ooh, how can I apply that? And so people have used the one day as a thousand days, a thousand years as a day to say that we've had 6,000 years of history. God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. We've had 6,000 years of history and now the 7,000 year is coming. So Jesus is coming back in September. That's the kind of math that they do, okay? That's bad math. Why is it bad math? Because the Bible says we don't know when Jesus is going to return. Nevertheless, that we are citizens who are waiting for him to return from heaven. It's extremely important for us that we would say Maranatha, that we would be waiting for him to return. Look at, look at it again, verse 20 in our text. For our citizenship is from heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. We eagerly wait for him. Are you waiting for Jesus to return? Every so often somebody will tell me, well, I just believe in, you know, I'm, I'm not pre-trib, I'm not post-trib, I'm pan-trib. It'll all pan out in the end. And I, I, I get the little chuckle with it, all right? It's been around for a long time. People have been saying that for a long time, all right? I get that. But, but here's the thing. That's kind of a passionate, passionless way to live. You know, Jesus could come back before the tribulation or I might go through it. Uh, I'm just going to wait and see what happens. I think the Bible's a little more clear than that. And I think that we are supposed to eagerly wait for his return. If you're, pan, if you're letting things pan out until the end, you're not eagerly waiting for him to return. On top of that, Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, you don't know when the Son of Man is returning. Therefore, be ready because he's going to return at a time when you don't expect him. We also have been told in 2 Thessalonians that the day is not going to come upon us like a thief in the night. Not because we know the day, but because we're waiting. We're waiting for him to return. It's like, you know, a thief's going to come. Jesus used this example. I think, in fact, I think I've got it to read here in a few minutes, but it's like a thief's going to come. And you know, thief's coming this night. To, I'm not getting any sleep because I'm going to be awake when the thief gets there. That's the idea. That you are ready, that you get ready, that you stay ready, and you eagerly wait for him to return. And I got to think that if you're eagerly waiting for him to return, that means things are right between you and God. Because if things weren't right between you and God, if you had unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life and you thought about Jesus returning, you probably wouldn't be eagerly waiting for him to return. You'd be going, well, yeah, give me some time. Let me get this taken care of. I'll work out whatever problem I've got going on and then he'll return. But because things are right between us and our God, we are eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this. This is what he's going to do when he shows up. And we know this from, from 1 Corinthians 15 and from, excuse me, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to transform our lowly body that we may be conformed to his glorious body. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, he tells us a mystery. And, and, and people will say, well, the rapture of the church is so hard to understand. Don't be shocked by that. It's a mystery. If it's a mystery, it's going to be difficult to understand, right? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but some of us are going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. This mortal will put on immortality. So when Jesus returns at the rapture of the church, the rapture, and I've said this before, and I think it's really true. I don't really like the term rapture anymore. It's just become a negative thing. It's not that I've always hated it. It's just become negative for people today. You believe in the rapture? They did becoming negative. Uh, yeah, I do. Because it's a resurrection. It's not, just, it's not just a rapture where all of a sudden we're all caught up and, you know, we're walking around this world and poof, we're in heaven and better have had clean underwear on or else you're in trouble. But that, that it is actually a resurrection where we get our glorified bodies where the bodies that we have here, which are called lowly bodies, this word for lowly 
can be translated as humble. We have humble bodies. The older we get, the humbler they're getting, by the way. That we may be conformed to his glorious body. So the Bible says that we know when we see him that we will be like him for we will see him as he is. And so when Jesus showed up on that first night, he's resurrected on the first day. He shows up, the disciples are all there except for Thomas, right? Thomas isn't there. Jesus appears in the middle of it. He didn't have to knock on the door. He didn't say, let me in. He suddenly was able to appear. He was able to go from one place to another place. And we're going to be like that. And we're going to have a glorified body. The Bible tells us that this body is like a seed that is planted and that the, the plant is, what is the result? So you might like your body right now. You might not like it. You, you may say, you know, I wouldn't mind being in this body for eternity. You would. Once you get there and you see our glorified bodies, then you would go, huh, I really shouldn't have, have missed out on that. It's going to be so much greater. But here's, here's what I love about Paul writing about this in, in Philippians. Not that long ago, we studied First and Second Thessalonians. We talked about the fact that First Thessalonians is the first letter that Paul ever wrote. It's not the first. You, Romans is the first one you find in the Bible written by him. But the, as far as the first one that he wrote, it was First Thessalonians. And do you remember at the end of every chapter, he ended talking about the return of Jesus Christ, about us waiting for him. So that's the very beginning of his ministry. Here he is, he writes the first letter to the Thessalonians. He writes, reminding them at the end of each chapter that they are to wait for Jesus to return to them. Philippians is one of his last letters. His very last letter will be 2 Timothy. But Philippians is one of his last letters. He's in prison and he has just as a great of a passion for the return of Jesus Christ. That as he comes to this portion of this passage, he says, and we are citizens of heaven. And what does Paul get excited about? Who eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body. Paul is still focused on it. What, what am I saying? Don't let people steal away from you the heart, the desire for the return of Jesus Christ. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May we keep our eyes on the skies. May we remember to watch and wait. The Bible not only tells us that we're supposed to watch, but it tells us we're supposed to wait as well. We're eagerly wait. Uh, we're right now eager to eagerly wait for the Savior. That means that right now we're waiting. What does the Bible tell us about waiting? The Bible tells us in, um, let me see if I can get to the right passage here. Uh, the Bible tells us in Isaiah, those that wait upon the Lord are going to renew their strength. Are you waiting for him to return? Are you watching for him to return? Do you know the signs of the time? Jesus rebuked the disciples because they could tell whether or not there was going to be rain, but they didn't know the time they were living in that Jesus was there. Do you know the times that we are living in? The Bible tells us that in the last days, lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. I think about the last two years, we talked about politics earlier. The love of many is waxing cold. People will hate you just because of what party you belong to. You will be hated by them, hated by them. And it, both parties too, by the way. Both parties will hate the other party just because of what party they belong to. And the lawlessness will, will abound. And that's happening not only in the United States, but it's happening everywhere. We have the whole defund the police thing now, but that's just a portion of what's taking place around the world today. These are signs that we are living in the last days. And may we keep Christ in focus and the return of Jesus in focus. I realize that you might have to put up with some scoffing that there, there may be people who say, you, you, you guys at Calvary, you believe in the rapture of the church? Yes, we do. And I say that proudly. I say that eagerly waiting for him to return for us. Now, <clears throat> I, love that, I love that oftentimes when people argue against the rapture, they'll say things like, well, the Bible doesn't use, uh, even use the word rapture, so the rapture is not true. 
which is really funny when you think about it because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible. But it doesn't mean that it's not clearly taught in the, in the Bible. And just because someone makes a statement and then as if that's the statement that ends all statements doesn't mean that it's not true at all. Not only does 1 Corinthians 15 tell us that we're not all going to sleep, but some of us are going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. But also 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4 tell us not that God doesn't want us to be ignorant, but that with a shout uh, of the Lord, and the voice of the archangel, that God's going, Jesus is going to descend and we are going to meet him in the air and we are going to forever be with the Lord. And so... Here again, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, for we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our bodies, that they may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Now, that's just a, that's just a point of surety. That's just Paul saying to the church at Philippi, according to his workings, he's able to subdue all things to himself, and he will one day do all of these things. There are all of these things that he has promised. He is going to bring judgment upon those who dwell upon the earth. And God's great desire is that people would get saved. I, I had said earlier that God desire, that God, the promises of God are not, God's not slack concerning his promises, but he desires that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is that you would be transformed. That you would say to him, Lord, I want you in my life. And the result of that will be a transformed person. And if you have not been transformed, maybe you've, maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you've considered yourself to be a Christian your whole life. But you don't have that point where you've said, Lord, I want to follow you and serve you. Then may you do that tonight. May you live for him, knowing that we are passing through this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And one day the, the sky will part. And Jesus will come through in all of his glory. Is he going to come back for you in that day? You want to get ready and then eagerly wait for his return. And I, and I truly do hope that you are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of the church that's lethargic about it. But the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday and day and forever. The same promises that told us to eagerly wait to the Philippians is true for us as well as we wait for our Savior to return for, to us, uh, for us. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the time that we're able to spend talking about uh, these transforming works that are done. Lord, I pray for those today that have not made a commitment to you. Maybe they're walking according to this world, but they're not walking according to you. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts and draw them to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.